The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. Matthew begins his ministry of Christ with the words of Isaiah, Light shines in the darkness. What is light? If you can get it, you stay in it. You don't wander outside its illumination. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region of shadow of death, light has dawned. John picks up that idea of light and gives us one of the most powerful pictures of the ministry of Christ, the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Is the light of Christ just one light among many? The brightest flash light of all flashlights? Oh no, you say. He's like a giant searchlight. He penetrates through the dark. Well, actually, if you think those things, you're actually thinking like Satan. The light of Christ, as a matter of fact, is singular. It goes to every quarter. Even the Galilee of the Gentiles cannot hide from it. Whereas Nathaniel pointed out, no good thing can come there, but the light of God just shone there. The light of Christ searches out every darkness, and it's not to be trifled with. It is the light of life, the only source of life and of release from death. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Now, sometimes growing up in a Christian home or a Christian community, being a covenant child, going to a Christian school, being homeschooled, our experience can be so close to the light that we're blinded by it. We spend our time staring directly into it instead of at what it shines on, 
our faith can grow cold. We can lose our first love. The light of the gospel can seem almost useless. We can despair of ever approaching its perfections. Certainly, we can get cynical about those around us ever being perfect enough to compare to the light and therefore certainly not perfect enough for our kids to play with. But here in this text, we see light coming in its proper form and purpose as the paradigm and pattern of all illumination, if it is to be called light at all. The light is dawning, and we compare the light of Christ to any sort of light, any other source of light. Let me go back. The light is dawning. We compare the light of Christ to any other source of life the way we would compare the sun to these flashlights and candles. The light of Christ is exclusive. It doesn't have any competition. Now, that, there's a terrifying statement, because when I say exclusive, we immediately think elitist, and that's not it at all. It's lover. The terrifying statement from the Law of Moses is, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He's not exclusive in the sense that he makes you among his elite. It's exclusive in that he is deeply jealous over anybody in your life, anything in your life that competes with him. So it's not just any light, it's the light of the world. It's the light that you step out into. It's the light that makes all other lights dark. If you're like me, you may have driven cars most of your life, in which as soon as a real car drives up behind you, your head, you can't see anything in your own headlights because you realize how dim they are. Your headlights are a shadow for the light of the car behind you. Jesus Christ is like that. There's, there's no competition. It's not, but it goes further than that. It's not just any darkness that he shines into. He is shining into the darkness, not of the first words of creation, darkness being on the face of the deep, but the darkness of all those who shut out the light of the words of creation. And they're still valid because they're spoken in Jesus Christ. Let there be light. It is his recreation of mankind and nature into the image of his son that is the fruit of that light. This light has no comparison. It has no competition. We compare the light to Christ. Jesus isn't like the light. He is the light. He's the creative pattern from which light is come to be like. We don't compare the Christ to the light. We compare light to Christ. Now Matthew underlines this exclusiveness of the light. Remember, exclusive doesn't mean elite. It means the jealousy of a lover. The exclusiveness of the light shining in the darkness three different ways. He describes the teaching of Christ. He describes the call of Christ. And he describes the work of Christ. The teaching of Christ is summarized in a few simple words. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They echoed John's message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His teaching had to do with the kingdom he was building on earth, whose source and authority was heaven. At that time, it was on its way. It was coming. He was the finger of God. And it had to do with how to enter and remain in that kingdom to repent. Now, what's different between then and now is the kingdom has come. Now, there are people who want to say either it didn't really come or it's going to come someday or we're in a vacuum in between kingdoms or something stupid like that. But when you actually read the words of Scripture itself, you'll see that entering into the kingdom then and entering into the kingdom now had to do with repentance. And because of sin, 
staying in the kingdom then and staying in the kingdom now has to do with repentance. I'll just give you a brief aside. If I'm speaking to reformed people, I will summarize and characterize you this way. That you are people who will defend to the death the doctrine of original sin. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Everything we do is tainted with sin. You will defend sin to the teeth. And yet, you will also go to the death rather than to admit to one sin. You know, sin small s. Something you repent. Something somebody puts their finger on in your life. And if you want to prove this, and you claim that you're reformed, you just let any anti-abortion abolitionist group come to your church and show your church the dead babies that are murdered very close to where you worship. And you'll be the first to say, wait just a second, we're pro-life. Are you? Oh yeah, you'll defend sin in general, but will you fall on your face and say, these children were murdered right under the shelter and the wings of our church? Will you actually repent of a specific sin? Will you look at the political world and rather than saying, oh, what are we to do? There's nothing we can do about all this. Rather than saying that, saying, oh God, how did we get to it that we, your people, have no idea what to do about it? Please open up our hearts. Let us start somewhere. Who's running for dog catcher? What should people who represent us believe? And then begin to work to make a change. You look at the fact that all around you there are as many Christians getting divorced as there are non-Christians to getting divorced. And you're not ashamed of this small sin? Oh, you'll repent of, oh, this, this statistic that I gave you, but will you look at your church and ask how in your church are you coming alongside and seeing to it that your covenant children don't grow up to be one more statistic in the world? Just today I was worshiping in, I think, one of the best churches in America, and as we were worshiping, they brought all the covenant children together, and everybody gathered around them, laid on hands, and we all prayed for the kids. Now, I'm a coward. It wasn't my place. I'm very Presbyterian, so I'll be bold as a, as a lion in this environment, but I'll tell you, I was a coward there. What I wanted to do is pray for the parents, that God would break their hearts, that they pray for covenant children, even as they turned them over to the pagan teachers of the world to disciple them in all the ways and the teachings that prove after every fact is learned in the government education system, all facts go towards proving there is no God or that God is irrelevant or that God is nothing more that gives you personal balance in your life. He, he corrects your chi, he corrects your ying or your yang or whatever it might be. It's that we're sitting here laying hands on our children and at the same time then sending them out to be discipled by people who hate everything you stand for. They require a prophetic word. I'm not much of a prophet. I'm only bold in situations like this where it's really hard to hear me because the guy behind me is, is building an office space for me. How do you enter in and remain in the kingdom of God. Any reformed, Calvinist, reconstructionist, theonomist, you're all the same. As far as the world is concerned, you're all the same. How do you enter in and stay on it? You repent. Yes, of sin in general. Oh Lord, of the sins of my mouth and of my lips. No, specific sins that you have committed. And when somebody calls it to mind, your response is not, how can you say that? 
Your response is to say, would you join me on my face and pray for me that nothing worse comes upon me? It's based on a continual, these underline the exclusiveness of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is based upon a continual recognition that there is no competition for our allegiance and behavior. We repent of all those times that we reject the king of God's kingdom and obey some other Lord and walk in some other light in the specific things we do. I'm just sick and tired of these 30-second repentance periods in churches when about the time you start thinking, okay, God, I've done this, I'm sorry for that, all of a sudden it's, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be Oh, make me puke. You want the words of your mouth to be in the meditations of your heart to be pleasing to God? Get on your face about the simple, obvious stuff first. Then find your husband and wife and confess to them. Find your kids and confess to them. We repent of those times that we reject the king of God's kingdom and obey some other Lord, walk in some other light. Because of our repentance to God, we're able to repent to each other. And I'll tell you something, if you can't repent to each other, if you see those AHA people out in front of your church and you're saying, what the hell are they doing? Oh, we don't, we're Christians. What, what in God's name are you doing here? The reason you can't repent for what you see there is because you haven't repented before God, period, for much of anything. You have no idea where you stand before God. You have no idea of the grace of God. That's why you can't repent of specific little things that you've done, the small s sins, even why you defended the death, the fact that all have sinned in some general sense and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, you have heard this taught many times. I want you to see it in a new light here, the light of how the life characteristics of humble repentance is a visible sign of God's exclusive claim on our life. The exclusiveness of the light of Christ is brought out by describing the call of Christ. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon and Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. No, that's not the single girl's Bible verse to claim. That's actually Jesus calling people to follow him by making them fishers of men. Have you ever discipled anybody? They ever worked with anybody? Have they led anybody to Christ? Could it be? Could it be that you have discipled them to be twice as fit for hell as you are yourself? I don't know. It's worth thinking about anyway. It's what I think about when I think of my life. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. There is no competition to the call of Christ. Jesus picks up John's warning when he says, Don't think that calling yourself sons of Abraham will save you. God is able to raise up stones, uh, sons of Abraham, out of these very stones. Jesus continues this idea by walking right up to men in the full exercise of filial piety. What is more profound than the fifth commandment, honoring your father? What is more profound than taking serious authority in your life and becoming somebody engaged in youthful work, being discipled by your father? Their life's calling requires them now because Jesus Christ has stepped into their life to walk away from their father and their livelihood. Now just stop and think of the significance of this. I'm not going into the first century context of this, which is far more significant than today. 
they were doing at that time what would be expected of any faithful son in Israel. They were not only following in their father's footsteps, they were working with their father. But they're told to leave their father, to leave their livelihood, to leave their means of supporting themselves, their wives, their children. Who would support their parents? Who would support them? Jesus doesn't answer these questions. The fact of the matter is they don't seem to have asked them. In fact, it doesn't even seem to have occurred to them. But the call of Christ is final, exclusive. It's the call of a lover who will have no competition. When Jesus comes to his church in the book of Revelation, the letters that he writes there, he says, this I have against you, you've left your first love. That base is loaded, full count, bottom of the ninth, is the ball going over the fence on the next pitch or not? That's the love that you have left behind. And that's the exclusiveness of the kingdom of God that he calls you to. Leave the issues of this life. Leave that, the entangling of nets. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things who will clothe and feed you. There is no competition to the claim and call of Christ. In some real sense, you must find that sense or be the one who refuses to answer his call. Christ must come before all other things. That's the nature of the exclusiveness of his call. If you look at what he says, however, you'll see an amazing thing that might help you find what it is that God is doing in the details of life. Stop fishing for fish. I will make you fish for men. What are you doing that is so important that you cannot transform all you do into the search for souls and their transformation, and in that very work, the search for the created order of all things and the transformation of what those souls are deeply engaged in into activities that recreate the world? What are you doing that says you cannot shine the light of Christ in a dark and murky sea? What is your life buried up to the middle of that is so important? It's not just that you say no to dropping everything and walking out and becoming a street preacher. You say no to reaching out for Christ among the very people that surround you, that you're in the midst of. It's not that you don't go out there and don't fish for men. We don't even fish for men with the people right next door, the people who work with us, the people who are right there. And you say, well, I, God's not called me to be a prophet. Fine, don't be a prophet, be a suffering servant. I can't even begin to go down the list of all the things the Holy Spirit could be telling you, but just, just listen to all the ways that if you were to do that, you would lose everything. Maybe Jesus isn't requiring you to go and wander around the land and work great mighty works. Maybe what he's calling for you to do is transform right where you are. Finally, Matthew underlines the exclusiveness of Christ's light by describing the work of Christ, and that's what we are moving into. What is the work of Christ that he's called you to? He just summarizes those works for us, and in them the rest of the gospel is going to unfold their significance. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. Then his fame went through all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Just a brief little word for those of you who are involved in pro-life ministry. You are dealing with the demon-possessed, many of whom are in the pulpits of America, many of whom are elders, many of whom are people who go out of their skin to protect the members of their congregation who have murdered their children 
thinking that what you bring to them is judgment as opposed to redemption in Jesus Christ. Reach them. You don't necessarily have to prophesy at them. They know the truth. Reach them. The issue is Jesus reached them, not his style of reaching them. He reached them. If you can't reach them, it really doesn't matter whether you're a prophet or a nice guy or whatever your calling and God may be, your gifts and your calling. If you're not reaching them, it really doesn't matter what you are. The call of Jesus Christ, the works of Jesus Christ, are not merely exclusive in the theoretical sense of his teaching. And you, who, if you're Reformed, you know exactly what I mean by that. Your teaching is so exclusive, you have to have a freaking PhD just to get it. Okay? That's why we don't evangelize people. Who on earth could understand the gospel? We said, don't worry, they're probably not predestined to understand it. No, the gospel is perfectly simple. You're the one who doesn't understand it. If you hide it under the bushel of, of Rush Dooney's institutes or Calvin's institutes or, or anybody else's institutes, those weren't intended to be a bushel. Those were intended to be a platform from which the, the gospel could be simply presented exclusively to draw lovers to Jesus Christ, the great lover. His call isn't exclusive in the vocational sense, in, in that all you do must be shaped by his word. His call is exclusive in his transformation of the world around you and each person who calls. You see, I don't have to tell you how to transform the world around you. I don't have a clue how to do it. I, I really don't. I do know this. You get on your face before God. You confess your sin before God. You take each person in your life who you are just know that if you are a Christian in front of them, that's it. You could lose your job. You could lose your respect. You could lose everything. And I'm not saying go out and prophesy to the, that person. I'm saying get on your face before God and cry out to God for that person, for his life, for his family, for her children, for her uh, whatever it is you know about them. Start praying for them by name. You'll, God will, the Holy Spirit will bring into your life stuff that you won't believe right now that you could, if I said, make a list of everything that's keeping you away from that person, keeping God in your life away from that person, you go, I don't know what to say, but you get on your face and God will just show you stuff right and left stuff that maybe it'll be your repentance to them that makes them say, maybe this guy's worth listening to. I don't know. This isn't a methodology I'm giving you. What I am saying is this. If you look at your life, for many of you, you'll see that, that around you, the exclusive call of Jesus Christ, the exclusive teaching of Jesus Christ, the exclusive works of Jesus Christ have been transformed into something essentially out of everybody's reach. And it's time now to put the cookies down on the lowest shelf in your life. And that comes through repentance and prayer. It's the first word of the gospel. It's not the first word of coming through the door. It's the first word as you leave the door at the end of life. It's joining with the word of Jesus Christ who says it's okay for you to repent. It's okay for you to be a servant. It's okay for you to let me heal your sin and the sickness of the land and all those around you. Look at how Matthew puts it. All the sick who are afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who are demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, he healed them. Christ deals with everything from evil spirits to mental problems to physical paralysis to just normal diseases. He deals with ethical error, moral error, theological error, political error. He deals with all those things. He makes people clean from the filth of their diseases and their thoughts and the demons which torment them. 
Christ will not be competed with in this world by any of those things. And when word gets out that there is a light in the world that is doing this, folks flock in. You know one of the prophecies of the New Covenant is found in one of the last books of the Old Testament where it says, ten Gentiles will grab hold of the cloak of one Jew and say, take us with you because we've heard that God is with you. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And when your life begins to reflect this healing light, ten Gentiles will begin to grab hold of your cloak. They'll want to, again, I love the Jungle Book, want to be like you, want to walk like you, want to talk like you. Because you see, you'll no longer care that it's you're the one being popular because they see in you who Jesus Christ is. Don't grow weary. When Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men, that is people who would reflect his calling, his teaching, and his work in everything you do, he was not picturing a guy with a fishing pole and a worm, which is the kind of fishing we do. The only fishing he knew was done with nets. Get ready for the harvest, especially those of you who labor in the killing fields, especially those of you who hold out the bread of life and you think you're alone especially those of you who do his work and intervene for those whom the church has forgotten, especially those of you who call the church of Jesus Christ to repentance and to renew their first love. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and his kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.